0: Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
1: Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts. Radio. News.
2: In February 2022, Russian forces stormed across the border into Ukraine and triggered one of the greatest military crises in Europe in nearly eight decades. America and over 30 of its allies joined together to impose the harshest economic sanctions any nation has ever experienced. The goal was to punish President Vladimir Putin and to drain the resources that kept his war going. In those first few months of the war, those sanctions aimed at Russia also hit the wallets of Americans. When the U.S. banned Russian oil imports, gasoline costs jumped 20%. President Joe Biden told the American public at the time that this was the price they had to pay to combat Russia's aggression.
3: The decision today is not without cost here at home. Putin's war is already hurting American families at the gas pump.
2: Back then, polls showed that most Americans said it was worth it. They were willing to pay more for gas if it meant stopping the war. But two years have passed, and the war is still going on. And while gasoline prices have fallen, America has spent tens of billions of dollars on aid to Ukraine, and is debating more. And the White House is promising substantial sanctions tied to the anniversary of the war. Today on the show, as US lawmakers debate more aid to Ukraine, and as the White House promises new sanctions tied to the death of Alexei Navalny and the anniversary of the war, we take stock of US-led sanctions on Russia two years out. We'll hear from the US Treasury Department's first ever chief sanctions economist.
3: Sanctions have been very effective and gumming things up, making this very painful process for Russia. It's ultimately changed the structure of the Russian economy. And
2: another economist, one who was working at Russia's central bank when the invasion happened.
1: I remember how Janet Yellen said in March 2022 that the the sanctions uh, will devastate Russian economy. But well, two years later, I can definitely say that the Russian economy is very much alive.
2: What did all of these sanctions add up to? And where do they leave the U.S. and Russia now? From Bloomberg's Washington Bureau, this is the Big Take D.C. podcast. I'm Saleha Mosin. Let's go back to February 24th, 2022, those first hours after Russia invaded Ukraine.
4: I can remember walking around seeing, you know, pictures of Ukrainian men, women, children huddling in underground platforms. Bombs were falling. Kiev was supposed to fall in days. And I think the world had never seen anything like this since World War II. You know, this was a land war on the European continent.
2: That was Bloomberg's Dan Flatley. He covers U.S. sanctions. Just days after the invasion, the U.S., European allies, and others announced sweeping financial restrictions on Russia.
3: As an outside observer, I'd say kind of very important moment in the history of imposition of sanctions just in terms of how coordinated and multilateral a lot of the activity was and how swift it was imposed.
2: That's Rachel Lingos. At the time Russia invaded Ukraine, she was an outside observer, but now she works inside Treasury as its chief sanctions economist. Her job is to analyze whether American sanctions are working, which is a tough thing to measure data from targeted countries is often unreliable, so she has to piece together information from tons
3: of different sources.
2: But she told me that the key to measuring the efficacy of sanctions is identifying their goals. Back in February 2022...
3: Two prongs. One is to deny Russia the ability to acquire weapons and technology they need to prosecute this war in Ukraine. And number two, to reduce the revenues made available to President Putin to fund this war.
2: One of the first things America and its allies did was to cut Russia off from a body called SWIFT. It stands for the Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunications. But it's easier just to think of it like the Gmail of the banking system. It's a way that banks around the world transfer money in a secure way.
4: Cutting Russia off of SWIFT was seen as something that would never, ever happen because the financial uh, system is dependent on transparency and making sure that everybody's talking to each other. So it was sort of seen as kind of a one of the red lines that the U.S. ended up crossing along with its allies.
2: And what did it mean for Russia?
4: For Russia, it basically meant no access to the worldwide financial system, at least no easy access.
2: It was one of the first indicators of just how much these policies that were meant to squeeze Putin would involve the rest of the world. Another one of those signs was that pain at the pump that Biden described. The U.S. and its allies sanctioned countless Russian individuals, businesses, and even yachts, and banned imports of Russian oil. That limited gasoline supply and hiked up prices in the U.S. But the interconnected nature of the global economy also worked to America's favor. Countries like Russia don't keep all their money in local banks or national currency. They store a good chunk of it abroad.
4: And essentially, because it's in dollars and because it's in euros, the Japanese yen and and other currencies, the G7 was able to basically say, we're locking this down and you don't have access to it anymore, which is really almost without precedent in the modern era.
2: In other words, the US and its allies that make up the group of seven essentially cut the Russian government off from hundreds of billions of dollars of its own money.
3: I believe it was the Sunday after the invasion. Actually, that nearly half, about 300 billion of these foreign exchange reserves were suddenly immobilized.
2: So in those first few days, the U.S. led the world in immobilizing Russia's reserves, cutting it off from SWIFT and sanctioning hundreds of people, businesses and entities.
3: I think all in all, 30 countries, 50 percent of global GDP had some measures that they imposed on Russia. So what did all of this do to the Russian economy? I think it's important to kind of take a look at the framing of where the Russian economy was kind of prior to that moment in February 2022. The Russians had built up a really sizable fiscal buffer over many years of fiscal discipline. They were coming out of COVID and the expectations was that their economy would grow anywhere between 2.5 to 3.5 percent that year. And then you have a steady drumbeat of sanctions Uh, in different sectors, you know, different financial institutions, not just the United States, but other allies and partners. So what was the impact on the Russian economy? Well, I think we can immediately point to the collapse in imports around 11 percent overall for that year. And then there were massive capital outflows as well. And I think that, according to the IMF's latest projections published earlier this month, there was ultimately a contraction of about 1.2% of GDP that year.
2: So Russia's economy shrunk. But as Lingus told me, that doesn't mean Russia and its citizens weren't able to find ways around the sanctions.
3: It's kind of like analogous to having a rock and like putting it in a stream of water. You know, over time, like water is going to find a way around the rock. So in terms of how the authorities respond, well, they were able to stem some of that bleeding by imposing a set of very draconian capital controls to try and prevent money from continuing to leave the country. Like raising interest
2: rates to stabilize the plummeting ruble and limiting bank withdrawals in Western currencies.
3: And they provided capital from the central bank to support the financial sector and use their National Wealth Fund, which is their sovereign wealth fund, to also help
4: support their economy. I think the reality is that Putin has found a way around the sanctions.
2: My colleague Dan Flatley again.
4: It's not as though the entire Russian financial system has uh, been cut off from the world. There are loopholes. Putin's able to get a lot of the technology into the country through the help of allies like China. He's able to get weapons from Iran and North Korea, and he's able to basically get his oil out still under the price cap.
2: Wealthy Russians found loopholes too. They started buying up Bulgari watches and other luxury items as a way to maintain their savings even as the ruble rapidly lost its value. I wanted to talk to someone who'd seen the impact of sanctions from inside Russia. So I called up Denis Kosinshuk. He's an economics editor for an independent Russian media outlet called The Bell. From where he sits, crunching the numbers on Russia's economy, Kostanchuk isn't so impressed by U.S. sanctions two years into the war.
1: Honestly, it seems to me that sanctions have run their course. It is hard to say that Russian economy is devastated at this moment because a week ago, uh, the Russian statistical agency dropped its numbers about the growth of Russian economy. So in 2023, the Russian economy grew by 3.6%.
2: Russian factories were able to keep up manufacturing. They just got their raw materials from new sources.
1: Last year, I made a research and found that Russia increased imports from neighbor countries by almost 40% in the first half of 2023 compared to the same period in 2022. So Russian companies just could buy all the components they needed from the neighbor countries like Armenia, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Georgia, and so on.
2: Bloomberg has reported that Russia actually managed to import over a billion dollars worth of American and European microchips last year for use in war technology. That's because the chips went through neighbor countries, so they weren't blocked by sanctions. That would require additional export controls. But Treasury's Lingos says it's not so simple. Just because the Russian economy is growing does not mean that all GDP
3: growth is created equal the initial reaction is like oh things are looking so resilient Rosie. you know resilient but i think but i think for when you start to get into the data and kind of like what's driving gdp these, these are where these distortions really start to emerge
2: coming up we dive into the data to see how these sanctions have reshaped the russian economy and find out how america and its allies feel about the sanctions now In January, the International Monetary Fund revised its projections for Russia's economic growth this year. It said, actually, we think it's going to be more than double what we predicted back in October. That may make Russia sound strong and U.S.-led sanctions weak. But Rachel Lingos, the chief sanctions economist at Treasury, says that Russia's GDP growth last year was driven by military production.
3: There's been this fundamental shift in the whole structure of the economy. It's very much driven now by military spending. This is a third of Putin's proposed budget now for this year, $100 billion. That's a 70% increase over the prior year. That comes at the expense of investing in social welfare. Things that make people's quality of life better.
1: Russia of money.
2: Russian economic analyst Denis Kostenshuk again.
1: In the ideal world, without the war, the state could invest this money to build uh, civilian infrastructure, to invest this money in science, to invest this money in healthcare. But in this case, Russia had a lot of money just to invest this money into the war.
2: All that investment in war, at the expense of investing in people, it's taken a toll.
3: There's been this severe brain drain. Not only is there this horrible loss of life, of kind of prime age workers that have been drafted and are just dying. On the other hand, you have a massive amount of emigration. My team and I looked at figures just coming from the central Russian bank to come up with about 700,000 people, left the country, but I've seen estimates that range around 1 million. That's a huge percentage of the population.
2: Katzenchuk is one of those people. Before the war, he was working as an analyst at Russia's central bank.
1: After the war started, I decided with my wife to leave Russia. And because my wife is Spanish, we had a chance to move to Spain.
2: If you ask Lingos, the impact of losing people like Kostenshuk, this brain drain, it's going to compound over time.
3: This is painful for them because these are the future growth potential of the society. Like, that's where all the innovation comes from. For an aging society, especially post-communist society where huge chunk of the budget is kind of social protection, social welfare, pensions. This is kind of where you're able to generate the future income to finance some of those pensions as more and more people retire. But those people leaving with less innovation, I think, in the long term, the prospects look very dim. Part of what makes
2: Lingos's job so hard is measuring the less tangible effects of sanctions. And she says one of those effects that shouldn't be ignored is Russia's injured status on the world stage.
3: There's an incalculable reputation lost. There is something toxic, if you will. And this, this kind of comes from my conversations with private sector, business, community, financial institutions just being associated with Russia, right? So those are some of the incalculable loss of prestige, the ability to project power overseas.
2: Two years out, it's easy to jump to conclusions. One common one is that sanctions failed to end the war. But Lingas and I were reflecting on those first moments after Russia's invasion back in 2022. At that time, the fear that I heard from sources that I spoke to before the sanctions came down or right as they did was that we need to do it now. We need to move fast, go through the weekend to get this done, because it's possible that Kiev could fall in 72 hours and it's actually over. And that has not happened.
3: And I I guess on the flip side, if you look at the perspective of like... Russia's leaders and Putin also thought that <laughs> Kiev was going to fall in a matter of days and this would be over. But now things are very different for them. They're ultimately in a situation where they're facing very painful trade offs, There's fractures in the system. There's a lot of tension in the economic policy making apparatus. And those things aren't going to go away.
2: Is Russia just changed forever now?
3: I think policymakers in Russia, like if I put myself in their shoes, they're backed into a very uncomfortable corner. A lot is being subsumed in these goals of expansionists acquiring more territory in Ukraine. And that comes at the expense of like general welfare of the population. So is Russia forever changed? I think that as long as Putin's current leadership prioritizes those goals above all others, then inevitably there's sacrifices, right, that that society is making. And there's very, increasingly very painful trade-offs. And yes, I do think that we're at the point now where being able to reverse that would be, I think, impossible.
2: Thanks for listening to the Big Take DC podcast from Bloomberg News. I'm Saleh Mohsen. This episode was produced by Julia Press and Naomi Shaven. It was fact checked by Stacey Renee. Blake Maples is our mix engineer. Our story editors are Michael Shepard, Wendy Benjaminson, and Caitlin Kenny. Nicole Beamsterbower is our executive producer. Sage Bauman is our head of podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. I'll be back next week.